ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 27. The Old Testament books paint a picture for us, a picture of the history of God's people, the Israelites. And it is a picture of longing, hope, and anticipation. Throughout the Old Testament, they waited for this promised king to come. As they struggled, as we still struggle with things today, but they struggled with foreign armies coming in and overwhelming them. They struggled with constant battles. They struggled in their own homes, especially with idolatry among their people. It's a picture of waiting. And the king would come and this promise hung over everything that they were and everything that they did. The king would come and would save them. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. You might be very familiar with this from Handel's Messiah, often heard around Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you hear the hope? A child is coming. A child will be born that will be king. Our King is coming, and they live generation after generation, battle after battle, foreign army coming in after foreign army coming in, with this hope the king would come. And with that hope, they were overwhelmed and taken into exile, losing their homes. Many of them died. And for generations, they lived in a foreign land and couldn't go back to the land God had given them. And they had this hope, one day our king will come and rescue us and deliver us. They returned to Israel and they began to rebuild. But it's not really impressive. At the end of the Old Testament, they've just started. They're kind of a ragtag group of of survivors barely holding on. But they believe one day that king is coming. One day these problems will go away. And then between the Old and the New Testament, there are 400 years of silence. No messenger from God. No prophets. No communication from God at all. And no king who came and delivered them. During that time, as they were just getting settled in the land and just rebuilding their cities and just reestablishing their own governments and their own control over the land, this little-known guy called Alexander the Great comes in and conquers them. And the Greek Empire is now in control of them, and then that transitions to the Roman Empire. And when we open the books of the New Testament, we see the Romans in oppression over the Jewish people. And their land, even though they live there, is not really their own. Their culture, as hard as they try, is not completely their own. The government is not at all their own. They are living as oppressed 
and dominated people. But they had this hope. A king would come that would save them. He would make it all better. Don't worry, kids. One day this will all go away because a king is coming. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And he begins preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And people go, this is it. Maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the king we've been waiting for. The kingdom is going to come and all of this oppression will go away and all of our struggles will go away and the Romans, they they have to go away. This guy's going to be our king. So he's going to raise up an army and he's going to overthrow these wicked Romans and things will be the way it should be. But Jesus doesn't start a rebellion. and He doesn't raise up an army. And on the whole, he seems completely indifferent to the oppression of the Romans. And then one day he's arrested. And he doesn't defend himself. He's convicted. And he's sentenced to die on a Roman cross. This king that we've been talking about in Matthew looks nothing like the king that they were expecting. They've, in many ways, given up on him. And this is where we are in the book of Matthew. King Jesus, who came to save us, is going to the horror and the agony of the cross. Arguably one of the worst forms of shameful punishment with great humiliation, and it seems to be a complete and ultimate defeat. And I imagine for so many of them, there's a question. A question that I think we still struggle with today. Where's our king now? Where is this king we hoped for and we anticipated? Where is our savior when he's not fixing the things we expected him to fix? Where is our king? We have to come to grips with the truth that our king doesn't do what we expect. He does exactly what we need. And Matthew tells us, as do all the gospels, our king was on that cross suffering in our place. Suffering in our place. I want to move through this text and just read it With little comment, I want us to be impacted by the word of God. I think it really speaks for itself here. Let's pick it up in 27, verses 27 to 31. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After that, or after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. This is our king, Jesus. And he's suffering in our place, being mocked by the very oppressors that these people thought he had come to overthrow. They humiliate him, put a crown of thorns on his head, 
And I imagine his followers, as they see much of this, from a great distance, of course, and they think, where is our king? And Matthew's saying, he's right there, wearing that crown of thorns for you. He goes on in verses 32 to 44, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. That's our king. Sovereign over all creation. The Bible says all things that were created were created by and through Jesus Christ. The Bible also says that all things exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus created these very people that are nailing his hands and his feet to the cross. He made them. He holds their life in the palm of his hand. He is their king. They mock him even as he hangs in agony on the cross. That's their king. And they're taunting him. Where is our king? He's suffering for about six hours on a Roman cross. And he's suffering in our place. Verse 45, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Ema, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff, offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. After them, or among them, were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, 
and the mother of Zebedee's sons. On the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he makes a choice, a decision, an action. The Bible says he gave up his spirit. Our king, the son of God, sovereign over all creation, chose to die. They didn't take his life from him. He gave his life for us. The one who came to bring life and to bring a rescue to those who were hopeless. In this moment, as they're watching the cross, it seems that he is the one without hope and unable to offer any hope to anyone. It seems like everything has been lost. It seems like things are even more hopeless than before. But there were a few little signs. The curtain that separated God's dwelling place from the rest of his people because he was so holy and they were so not, it rips open. And the way to God has been opened up. Why? Look at the timing. Because Jesus has died in our place. Even some who had died are being brought back to life. And we see the Roman guards understand that something momentous has happened. There's this inkling. Something big is happening. Where is our king? He's on that cross. Dying. Dead. His lifeless body still hanging there because he died in our place. Verse 57, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out from the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. catch up maybe. I don't know where I am. And they placed it, he placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. There are those either out of hope or maybe pity or possibly a desire to honor their friend. They stayed near the lifeless body of Jesus Christ. Joseph of Arimathea gives his own tomb for his king to be buried in. 
These women who followed Jesus even from a distance, though they were closer to him than all the other followers. They're there watching and mourning. The religious leaders want to make sure no one can say that Jesus has risen from the dead. Let's make sure that no gossip or rumors start. And the question goes out, where is their king? Where is our king? And he's there in that grave. His lifeless body on a slab of rock with a large stone rolled over the entrance. And there he is. He has died and he has been buried for us. Why? That's the question that we need to ask as we go through the crucifixion account. Why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? It's the question that would have been going through their minds. Why? Why didn't he overthrow the Romans? Why didn't he do what everyone thought that he would do to make their lives better? Why? Why did he suffer? Why did he die? I want to look for a moment at the suffering of the cross. It's important to understand why Jesus suffered and how that links to who we are. Because Jesus endured this suffering in our place. It's it's one thing to look at the cross and say it's it's a beautiful, though difficult example of God's love. It's another thing to look at the cross and say that should have been me. When you read the agony of the cross, we need to stop and remind ourselves, that's what I deserve. I want to talk about the physical suffering of the cross. This is probably the most obvious. Movies have been made over the immense amount of physical suffering. Articles have been written. I think it's the most obvious suffering as we read through it. But it was incredible. D.A. Carson writes, Crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading. Whether tied or nailed to the cross, the victim endured countless paroxysms as he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion until the demand for oxygen demanded renewed paroxysms. The scourging, the loss of blood, the shock from the pain, and all produced agony that could go on for days, ending at last by suffocation cardiac arrest, or loss of blood. When there was reason to hasten death, the execution squad would smash the victim's legs. Why? Why so much suffering? Why would the Son of God, and I hope I've set this up well throughout the whole series, He chose this. Jesus is not a victim on the cross. He is the king, reigning in sovereignty, making a choice to suffer on the cross. Why? We were created, given life by our creator God. And he told Adam and Eve, one tree in the garden, one fruit, don't eat it. And what did he say would happen? And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Or certainly die. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This sin that causes death is in each and every one of us. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. We always think of death as this out there someday, it's going to be awful, but one day we're all going to die. Biblical death is much more than that. It is an infection that seeps into our day-to-day lives. Death is at work in us constantly. Constantly. We are like flowers that have been cut from our roots. We might look beautiful for a time and, and show strength and vigor. And we say, look at me, I'm so amazing. Here's my petals and my leaves and I'm so green and so beautiful and colorful. But our source of life has been snipped and death is at work. We see it plainly in a flower. It just takes a couple days. More if you don't water it. It just falls apart. But friends, we see it in our lives too. Think about how many times those aches and pains and how many of us have had that thought, man, getting old is hard. It's hard. Why? Because death is at work. You have a loved one in a hospital. And the doctor comes and he explains to you what's gone wrong. And you think, why? Why are those cells not doing what they're supposed to be doing? And instead they're doing this. Why is the infection spreading? Why is this not working the way it's supposed to? Why? Because death is already at work in us. It has seeped into our living. And we are in always in the process of dying. Death is at work. Why? Because the God who created us made us for life and we turned away. We said, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to choose my own way. Here's the way of life. And we chose anything else. And it doesn't matter how great or awesome that looks in a moment. If it's not the way of life through God, it is automatically by definition the way of death. God is the creator and sustainer of life. When we look and think about hell, we talk about an eternity. Hell is literally an eternal death. It is the ultimate end of death's work on an ongoing and unending basis. It is absolutely horrific. The very nature of our physical selves being torn about part constantly forever and ever. Books have been written of people that think they've gone into hell and they come back and they give a report. I don't put much stock in that. But friends, if you want to know what hell's like, you want to see it, you want a vivid picture of exactly how awful it's going to be, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the physical torment he experienced on the cross should have been ours. And apart from Jesus Christ, that's where we're all heading forever and ever. He went through the physical suffering that we deserve so that we don't have to. He suffered in our place. But he didn't just suffer physically. Jesus suffered socially. 
Think for a moment about the relationships that Matthew emphasizes throughout this passage. Here we have the king of the world who created all these people, who called certain ones, the disciples, into a relationship with him. And the disciples have abandoned him. And his created beings are taunting him and shunning him. The Roman soldiers mock him. Pilate mocks him with a sign over his head, the king of the Jews. The rebels even crucified on each side of him. They're in the same boat. They're making fun of Jesus. And everyone who passed by hurled insults at him. And you would think in those moments of darkness, when it seems like everything's turned against you, at least you have those people you can depend on. People like Peter... James, John, his closest friends, they're nowhere to be found. Peter has gone so far as to call upon holy, devout oaths and curses upon himself, swearing, I don't even know that man. Jesus suffered on the cross in a relational way as he was abandoned and left alone. Why? Because it should be us. When we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and they fall into sin, what's the first thing that happens? The relationship between each other is broken too. They try to hide from one another and cover themselves. And then immediately they're blaming one another. And instead of having this beautiful relationship together because they have a beautiful relationship with God, it's all broken and it's all a mess. Sin destroys relationships. It tears apart the relational fabric of our society and our families and our churches that God intended and that he created. And yet sin comes in just like our physical bodies. It it rips apart our relationships. Ever wonder why there's so much hate in this world? Sin. Why is there discrimination and racism? Sin. Why do marriages fall apart? It's sin. Why are relationships so hard? It's sin. Just like physical death is at work even now, social death, social suffering because of sin is in our lives even now, ripping apart our relationships. Now consider what hell will be like. I said, if you want to know what hell would be like, look at Jesus on the cross. Jesus experienced absolute isolation on the cross. You know those moments when you feel like you're hurt and alone? Everything's against you. You've been betrayed by those that you love most and everybody hates you or misunderstands you. Whether we're accurate in that description or not, I think we all know that feeling, that moment. Imagine that moment lasting forever. with nothing to come along and make it feel better. That's what hell will be like. And that's what Jesus went through on the cross for us. Why? Why did he suffer that way? Because of our sin and because that's what we deserve. He suffered in our place. But there's more. See, Jesus suffered physically and he suffered relationally or socially, but he also suffered spiritually in his relationship between him and God the Father. 
The Old Testament has a law about what to do in one of the worst, most awful of crimes when someone murders someone else in just cold blood. They are to be hung on a tree or a pole and put to death. And Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 tells us something very interesting. Anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Now, it wasn't necessarily a cross, but they had developed this idea that the cross is a curse from God. To hang on a cross is to be cursed by God. And here their king, their savior, who declared he is the son of God, is hung on a cross. But they're not wrong. And in many ways, the prophecy is fulfilled because as Jesus hangs on that cross, he is under a curse. Matthew 27, verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've seen many theologians and commentators try to dance around this holding on to a good theology of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, perfect relationship throughout all of eternity. And they say, there's no way. You can't really have a separation in the Trinity. You can't have it. The words are there. Jesus, his lips speak the words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would like to take the words of Jesus at face value. That as he hung on the cross, somehow, some way, I don't need to understand or explain it all, but somehow he understood in that moment he was forsaken by God the Father. Something had broken the relationship between him and his Father that had been perfect from eternity past. Why? Why this spiritual suffering? Scripture says that in our sin, we are under God's wrath. We are separated from him. It goes so far as to say we are God's enemies. There is a brokenness in our relationship between us and God. And everything is messed up because of it. Think what hell will be like every moment for eternity knowing that the God who created you and loves you is forever and ever your enemy and is against you. Why did Jesus suffer spiritually on the cross? Why was he forsaken by God in that moment? Because of my sin and because of your sin. And it was put on our King Jesus. And God judged him and forsook him. The cross shows us the incredible suffering that we deserve because of our sin. It shows us in a terrifyingly real way the suffering that remains for anyone not saved by Jesus Christ. But it also shows us that Jesus Christ, our King, suffered in our place as our substitute. But so what? Many claim big things. Maybe it's just an amazing act of love, a demonstration of love, but maybe he was just crazy. How do we know it did anything? 
You know, there's an interesting ray of hope in one of the taunts of the crowds in verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 40. They're mocking Jesus, but they say something profound. They say about Jesus' teaching, you said you would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. What's the temple? Temple's the dwelling place of God. It's the meeting place between God and man. Now, for them, it was a building, and God's presence dwelt within it. Who's Jesus? Matthew's already said all the way back in chapter 1, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. Is not the most perfect temple, the very dwelling place and presence of God with his people. So what's the real temple? It's Jesus. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Even in their mocking, they're fulfilling God's plan. Jesus didn't just suffer death in our place for our sin. He conquered death, and he conquered sin. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus accomplished all he set out to on the cross. But more than that, the resurrection shows us the new life we have in God through Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised to life physically. We're going to see a restoration of social relationships. And we're going to see a restoration of the spiritual relationship. All of it restored through the resurrection. Look at Matthew 28, 1 through 10. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. On Friday, Jesus suffers an agonizing death. And on Sunday, he is alive again. Why? Because he's conquered sin and he's conquered death. The Bible says it is finished. What Jesus did on the cross, it is finished. He has defeated all of these things that have ripped us apart from the beginning of human history. He has beaten it. He suffered physically, but now he's physically alive. The angel said he's risen. He has new life. The body is gone. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. Live men don't need tombs. And Jesus is alive. The women meet Jesus. They don't see a ghost, a specter, a ghoul, a zombie. They see a man who is alive. 
The brokenness of death that he experienced on the cross. The brokenness of his physical suffering. All of it's done with. It's finished. He is alive. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus has conquered the physical consequence for sin. And the resurrection is the evidence of the new life we have in Jesus Christ. He suffered socially. Betrayed by so many. And yet he tells the women, and the angel tells the women the same thing, and I love this. Think of what they did to him in his hour of greatest need, and he says, go, tell them. Make sure they know about this. He calls them my brothers. Go tell my brothers, the ones who abandoned him and walked away. He wants them to come and to see him, and he wants to be with them. Why? Fast forward just over a month later and Peter will stand on the streets of Jerusalem and a crowd is there. And I imagine some of that crowd was there when Jesus was crucified. Some of them maybe even at the trial shouting out to crucify Jesus. And Peter shares the gospel. And he invites them to repent and to be saved. And a whole multitude of them are. And they're restored to a right relationship with God. But it goes on in Acts 2. It gives this beautiful picture of the early church constantly meeting together with glad and sincere hearts. And the social struggle that sin has brought and the division in the relationships is healed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the healing of even the social and relational suffering of sin. Jesus also suffered spiritually so that we could be restored to a right relationship with God. Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross. Our sin put on him. And the holy God could not look at our sin. And the relationship that we live in constantly, this broken relationship between us and God because of our sin, in that moment, all of it, all of our sin, all of the brokenness put on our King Jesus. And He dies in our place. And the resurrection is the proof that the relationship between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father is renewed and restored and perfect and whole forever and ever. And it means the same For us. How can I know God loves me? Look to the resurrection. How can I know he accepts me? Look to the resurrection. How can I know I have new life in him and I'll be with him forever? Look to the resurrection. It is the proof. Friends, if you want to know what hell will be like, look to the cross. You want to know what heaven will be like? You look to the resurrection in the empty tomb. Our king has come and he has conquered death and he has conquered shame and he has conquered our sin that separates us from God and brings us death and tears us apart from the inside out. Our king has come and conquered sin. We have a king. When you ask, where is he? Why isn't he doing what I expected? Why isn't he doing what I want? It's because he's doing something far better. He is saving us from our sins. And he is giving us new life in him.
And all those things that you want fixed, they find their roots. If they're real and they're true and you're right about it, they find their roots somehow, some way in either your sin or someone else's sin or just the brokenness of this world because of sin. And Jesus has conquered sin and death. We have a king who has saved us. So stop every once in a while and ask yourself, who is my king? And remind yourself, my king went to the cross for me. It should have been me and he took my place. My king rose from the dead for me. I don't deserve that. I deserve the cross. I do not deserve the resurrection. But he did it for me. And anyone in Christ has that new life at work within us. Our king has come and he offers salvation to all who trust and believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is with trembling that I preach these words. I so want for for my ideas and my words to just get out of the way. And I pray, Father, each one here that has heard your word, your scripture, the very writing of Matthew about Jesus as, as Matthew was led by your spirit, given your words from you to him to write to us. God, may that impact our very souls. And the truth it tells us is so profound earth-changing, life-changing, eternity-shaping. Our King, your Son, died in our place. He took all of the suffering that we deserve and He bore it and He conquered it and He defeated it and then He rose to new life. And we who are living death-scarred lives in a death-tarnished world are offered life eternal through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I pray that none of us would be so proud and so arrogant to look at this truth and to say, I don't need it. I'm good on my own. But instead, may we fall before your throne and say, that is my king. I do not want to rule in his place, nor will I follow anyone else. That is my king. My king suffered and died in my place. And I have new life in him. And if there's anyone here who has not followed Jesus, not trusted him, may today be the day as they hear about the cross and the resurrection to say, I want that king. I want that savior. God, all they have to do is just admit that they're a sinner. To accept that difficult truth. But then they can look to the cross and understand why Jesus did it. And to trust in him and be saved. And Father, for the rest of us, there are times we don't live in light of the resurrection. And we still struggle with hope and we still struggle with our own measure of anticipation and our own perspective on what you should and should not be doing. And we still at times wonder, where are you? 
May we continue to trust. To know that you are doing exactly what needs to be done. And may we continue to trust. And to live in the truth. That our king has saved us. And that we have new life in him through his resurrection from the dead. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ our king we pray. Amen.